Well, good morning. My name is Matt Farlow. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship. I am thrilled that we are here together this morning. I want to apologize on the front end for my voice. I've been battling the crud all week, and so if my voice sounds kind of weird, that's why, all right? Uh, My prayer is this morning, just as we have worshiped the Lord through our singing and through our giving, we can continue to worship the Lord as we look to his word together. Over the last few months, we've been uh, looking at the gospel of John, and it has been so good to see and hear how John presents Jesus, the Son of God, who left his Father's side in heaven and set up shop here on this earth And he came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It has been so good to to look and to learn from John's gospel. Uh, We're going to pick up back in the gospel of John next week. But for today, we're going to push pause on that and actually turn one book over to the right, to the book of Acts. And this morning, we're going to see what happens on a personal level when someone has a personal encounter with Jesus the Savior. Let me give you a little spoiler alert. It's pretty incredible. Okay, so if you've got a Bible, if you've got a device, would you turn or tap your way with me to Acts chapter 9? Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to be. And before we dive into that, would you please join me with a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for the fact that we can gather together in this place this morning and worship you freely Our prayer, Lord, is that you would be greatly glorified through us, your children, as we sing, as we look to your word. And our desire, Lord, is that we might honor you as we leave this place changed. May you be glorified in us as we look at your power to save. And Lord, it's our prayer that we would walk out of this place Um, encouraged at your love and your relentless grace. May we walk that out in faith and obedience this morning. Would you be glorified in us? And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. First time I really encountered Jesus was on a basketball court. It was my junior year at Texas A&M University. I was playing intramural basketball with a couple of my buddies, and in between games, one of the guys sat down next to me and started talking to me about Jesus. He asked me some questions about who I thought Jesus was, and then he told me about some things that Jesus had done and about what he had said. He told me about how Jesus had died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, and then he had risen from the grave to confirm his power and his victory. And at first, if I'm being really honest, I was kind of annoyed. I mean, for real, I'm thinking, bro, I just came here to play basketball, and now you're here talking to me about Jesus? But that conversation on that basketball court turned into a few more conversations over the next few weeks. And eventually, it wasn't long before I confessed my sin and my need for a Savior, and I trusted Jesus for eternal life. That's a bit of my story. And if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, you have a story as well. And you know, it'd be really fun for us to spend time together uh, telling our stories. Uh, For me, it's always really powerful and encouraging to hear other people tell their story of their relationship with Jesus and how all that came about. Maybe that's something that we could do someday. 
Um, But let me tell you, if we did that, if we did take the time to share our stories with one another of our of our salvation, how Jesus came into our lives. Let me tell you what would happen. The details, the circumstances of how our conversion happened would be wildly different. Some people were saved when they were very young. Other people were saved later in life. Other people were saved through some dramatic, crazy circumstances. Others may be saved in circumstances that seem, at least by comparison, kind of vanilla. But here's the thing. Those are just the details. Those are just the circumstances. The truly important part, the truly amazing part, is the core of what happens at conversion. And if we had time today to share with each other the story of our salvation, even though the details would be wildly different, the core of what happens at conversion would be the same in each and every story. As a result of God's sovereign work in that person's life, their heart and their mind, their eyes were open to their sin and their need for a Savior. Their eyes would be open to Jesus, the one who brings redemption and who, by virtue of the fact that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and he rose from the grave to confirm his power and victory, at that moment, Jesus would do what he does best, save. Does that make sense? And that means at least one thing. You and I should never say, that the story of our salvation is boring. I've heard people say that. My story is so boring. There's nothing special about it. Can I be honest with you? I think that is an insult to Jesus when we say that the story of our salvation is boring. The details might seem boring, at least again by comparison to somebody else. But the core of what happened how you and I who were dead in our sin have come to new life through being born again in Jesus, that is a miracle. And God doesn't do boring miracles. Now, I feel better. (laughs) This morning, we're going to look at how God saved a man named Paul. And if you're familiar at all with the Bible, you know Paul. You know this guy. As a missionary, Paul spread the good news of the gospel far and wide all over the ancient world. As a church planner, Paul established scores of churches and raised up many men and women as leaders. God used Paul to write much of the New Testament. And through what Paul has written in this book, there have been millions and millions of people throughout the centuries that have come to know and follow Jesus. Paul's Paul's gifts and his life have been used by God to impact civilizations. It's not overstating it at all to say that Paul's impact is on a global, eternal level. And yet, where did Paul come from? What's his story? This morning, I'm hopeful and praying that by the time that we're done this morning, at least three things will be clear. 
I'm praying that as we look at Paul's story, we can see how Jesus saves people. His story is a great place to see how conversion works. There's something else about Paul's story that his story offers some great lessons for those people who are here this morning who are already saved, who already follow Jesus. There's some great lessons in his story for you. And lastly, there's one powerful message for those people who may be here this morning who think, you know what, I have blown it. My life is a mess. There is no way God could forgive somebody like me, is there? Is there any hope of anything better? If that's you this morning, Paul's story offers some really good news. So let's look at Paul and his story. The first time he shows up in the Bible is uh, there in the books of, book of Acts at the end of chapter 7. At that time, Paul, who was actually known as Saul, later Saul's name was changed to Paul. So if I get that mixed up, you can just know it's the same guy. Okay, as, 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 as Saul shows up in the Bible story there in Acts chapter 7, what's going on is there's a man named Stephen who is being stoned to death for the crime of following Jesus and proclaiming the gospel. Okay, the, the scriptures tell us that as the people who were in the, in the act of actually stoning Stephen to death, they, they laid their robes at the feet of of a man named Saul. And the scriptures tell us that as Stephen breathed his last, Saul gave his approval. For Saul, the public execution of a follower of Jesus was a cause for celebration. It made him say yes. So let's pick up the story there in Acts chapter 9. It says in verse 1, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Let's understand the picture. There's no sugarcoating it here. Saul hated Jesus. He hated those who followed him. To Saul, Jesus was a fraud, an imposter. The men and women who followed him, they were a bunch of wacko, crazy nut jobs who deserved to be thrown into prison or, if Paul had his preference, be executed. Saul was at war with Jesus. This was not a minor or peripheral thing in Saul's life. It went right to the very core of who he was. It says that he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This literally was the very air, the very breath that Saul breathed. Saul had worked hard to clear out Jesus' followers from Jerusalem, and now he's going to take his mission of persecution on the road all the way up to Damascus, about 150 miles to the north. And it says in verse 3, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Let me just go out on a limb here. I'm guessing that nobody in here has experienced circumstances or details in the story of our conversion like that. Anybody seen a bright light from heaven? Been struck blind? Audible conversation with Jesus? Man, those are details that are amazing. But remember, it's the core of what happens at conversion that we want to look at this morning. And, and here's the truth. There is a deep ocean of all the things that we could say about God's power and his love, his grace and mercy that he demonstrates through the work of salvation, through the work of conversion. There's a deep ocean. We can never get our minds fully around it. But for the sake of our time this morning, I just want to focus on three things. Three things that we can know and understand by looking at Saul's story, that we can um, begin to glorify God and understand the power and magnitude of his forgiveness that he shows through conversion. We can learn about how Jesus saves people. So here's the first one. A person becomes a Christian when the Lord deals directly with you. That is, in conversion, a person becomes a Christian. And a, a Christian is something that you become, by the way. It's not something that you're born into, but it's something you become. A person becomes a Christian when the Lord deals directly with you. Saul is on that road to Damascus. He encounters Jesus, and now they're going to have a direct face-to-face encounter where Jesus speaks directly and personally to Paul. So again, a person becomes a Christian when the Lord deals directly with you. It's not some generic message that goes out, but the Lord speaks to you personally and directly. I'm reading a book right now that um, is just one of those books that I can't put down. You ever read a book like that? Sometimes you read a book and you can't put it down because it's just thrilling. Or maybe you can't put it down because it's just, you know, every chapter ends on a cliffhanger. This book I can't put down because it is so beautiful. It really is. The title of the book is Gay Girl Good God. And in this book, the author, Jackie Hill Perry, tells the story of who she was and who God has always been. In this book, we kind of read the story about Jackie Hill Perry. She is an author, obviously. She's a poet. She's a hip-hop artist. But before all of that, her childhood in St. Louis was marked by sexual assault and by a father who was never there. As she grew up, she began to lean into that painful void of her brokenness, and she sought solace. She sought love in the embrace of her lesbian lover. 
But there was something else. She began to realize that God was calling to her. She began to to realize that God was speaking to her and calling her to find healing and find uh, her place in his true love instead of that false love. He was calling to her to find life in him instead of the idols and the gods of her own making. I want you to realize, or sorry, I want you to, to, to hear what she writes about this encounter. She says, surrender to me had never been explained in these terms. There were no pews nearby with emotion-laden music to woo me from my seat. No preacher howling scriptures through a cordless mic with his left arm gesturing for this sinner to come. Beneath me wasn't an aisle leading to an altar for me to lay my sins. All of my many, many sins probably wouldn't have had enough room on a common altar anyway. It was only me, my room, and God. We'll hear some more about her story in just a moment. But when this happens, when God begins to deal directly with a person, that's when we can see this second core element of how conversion works. And that's this, that when that happens, when God begins to deal directly with a man or a woman, their perception of God and their perception of themselves is radically changed. When God begins to deal directly with a person, their perception of God and their perception of themselves is radically changed. We can get a sense of this as we read about what happened with Saul on that road to Damascus. It says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I want you to notice the question that Jesus asked him, why are you persecuting me? You see, all of Saul's sins, all of his sins of anger and hatred and murder, no doubt they were committed against other men and women, but ultimately Jesus is saying, Saul, you are sinning against me. You are persecuting me. You are rejecting me. You are declaring war on me. And this is why I say that uh, when a person begins to deal directly with God, when the Lord deals directly with them, their perception of themselves and of God is radically changed. Because ultimately, that person, that man or woman, begins to realize that ultimately our sin has been committed against Jesus. We're sinning against him. Now, this is one of those spots where we have to be really, really careful, okay? We need to be careful that we don't fall into a trap of thinking, well, man, that was Saul. That's Saul who did all those awful things. I mean, he killed people. I've never done that. I'm not perfect, but I'm nowhere near as bad off as him. I mean, again, uh, I, I know that I've got some work to do, got some areas where I can grow, but that's not me. Have you ever thought that way before? 
I think we're all prone to think that way. That's exactly what I was thinking on that basketball court when my friend was talking to me about my sin and our need for a Savior, okay? We're all prone to think of ourselves in better light than we really are. We're all prone to rewrite our own history to make us come out looking better than we really are. We're all prone to look at other people and compare ourselves to those who are worse off than we are. We're all prone to look in all sorts of mirrors, except for this mirror, the mirror of the Word of God that says things to us like, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says things to us like the wages of sin is death. So whether it's Saul there on that road uh, to Damascus having a conversation with Jesus, or it's you and me in a different spot, in a different memorable place, having a conversation with Jesus the Savior, conversion happens when the Lord begins to deal directly with us and our perception of God, our perception of ourselves is radically changed when we begin to admit the depth and the disaster of our sin. That's when Jesus the Savior goes to work and does what he does best, saves. That leads us to the third uh, core element of conversion that we can see in Saul's story, and that's this, that when conversion happens, God changes you. When conversion happens, God changes you. Some of these changes happen in in an instant, in that second, at that moment when a man or a woman turns to Jesus, acknowledges the depth of their sin and their need for a Savior, they cry out to Jesus. At that second, the Scriptures tell us that for that man or woman, that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sins from us. At that instant, that man or woman who cries out to Jesus is forgiven. They are justified before God. That word justification is a word that theologians use to speak of God's power to forgive and God's power to wipe the record clean and cleanse that sinner's track record white as snow. Aren't you glad for that this morning? But the changes don't stop there. Again, justification happens in that second, but God begins to begin a work of more change in a person's life, change that takes place over time. This is the work of sanctification, where sanctification is God's working change in a man or woman's life over a period of time to help them learn and how to grow and look more and more like Jesus. It's a process of change where we grow in holiness. Some of those changes happen very quickly. Some take a little bit longer, but there will be change. You can see this in Saul's life. Before, Saul was consumed with a passionate hatred for Jesus. And after salvation, now what? He's consumed with a passionate love for Jesus. Before, he put all of his energy, all of his zeal, all of his passion into persecuting the followers of Jesus. After salvation, he puts all of that energy, everything he had into loving them, blessing them, 
teaching them, suffering for them. And again, there is so much we could say about this work of Jesus to save, so much that we could say about conversion. But this morning, let me ask this one crucial question. Is God working in your life? Is he working in your life right now? Conversion happens when you see God, when you see Jesus, when you see yourself, and then you see your need for mercy. And when that happens, when a sinner cries out to Jesus, they can be saved. Now, so far, Saul's story, again, it's taught us some some great lessons about God's power to save. But there's some more to this story. And there's actually a pretty powerful lesson for those who are here this morning who already know Jesus, who are already, who've already been saved. Let's check out and see what happens next. In verse 10, it says, There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. At this moment, I'm thinking Ananias is sort of like, "Um, Jesus, I, I must need to get my hearing checked. I thought you just said you want me to go see Saul of Tarsus. I mean, yo, this, this can't be happening. This is, you, you must have it wrong. We've got to remember that for Ananias and for the other believers there, that Saul was the last person they could ever conceive of being saved. It'd be like Jesus coming to you or me maybe 10 years or so ago and saying, hey, I got this guy. I need you to go down to the airport and pick him up. Uh, bring him with you to church. Let him stay at your house for a few days. His name is Osama bin Laden. Tall guy, turbans, easy top beard. You can't miss him, all right? Again, for Ananias, Saul was the most unlikely person he could ever conceive of being saved. But, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and before kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he will suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, and he entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. I want to stop right there and just say, those are some sweet words. Those are some sweet words right there. Ananias' name means the Lord is gracious. And for him to come into that house, to approach Saul, his former enemy, who has now met the Lord and who has now been saved, approach him and place his hands on him and call him Brother Saul, those are some sweet words. Ananias is demonstrating the gospel in real life relationship. His actions and his attitude reflect Jesus. 
Jesus had all sorts of people who came to him out of all sorts of brokenness. There were lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors, other untouchables. Jesus didn't reject them. He embraced them. So that's a lesson for those of us who are here this morning who already know Jesus and follow him. May we respond to others, especially those who come out of much brokenness, with this same grace. So Ananias lays his hands on Saul and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples there at Damascus. One of the most powerful things that we can see here in Saul's story is this, that the most unlikely people can be and are saved. The most unlikely people can be and are saved. God's mercy and his power to save are not limited to good people. Those who've been set up for salvation through having a background in church or maybe a clean moral track record. What this story tells us is that no amount of sin threatens God's ability to bring grace, to bring salvation. And what that means for you and me is this, that we should never give up praying for those that we know who are special to us, people in our lives who who are not saved. We should never give up praying for them. Maybe you have a person in your life. Maybe it's a a friend. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a a son or a daughter um, that you've been praying for for a long time and you'd love for them to be saved, but... And it's been a long time. And you're thinking, I just don't know. There's no use hoping for this anymore. There's so much sin, so much anger, so much resistance. And maybe, you know, maybe it's not going to happen. You've been there before? I have. One of the things that Saul's story teaches us again is that no amount of sin threatens God's ability to save. And it's a mistake to think that our prayers for those people that we love, who are praying for them to experience the life-changing reality of a relationship with Jesus, it's a mistake for us to think that those prayers are only effective if they show some sort of interest, if they show some sort of openness, if they show some sort of sensitivity. Listen, Saul wasn't interested. Saul wasn't open. Saul wasn't spiritually sensitive. He was utterly closed, and yet Jesus saved him. So let's never give up praying for those that we love to know Jesus. Let's never give up speaking the good news of the gospel to them in love. But you know, there's one more thing about Saul's story of conversion to look at today. And man, this is something really special. It's something unique. Maybe you're here this morning and 
you're hearing all of this and you're thinking, you know, you don't know, Matt. I mean, there's, there's sin in my life that's big. There's stuff in there in my past that I'm not sure God could forgive. And maybe you're covered up with guilt. Maybe you're held captive by shame and you're thinking, I don't know. I think that what you're talking about may not apply to me. If that's you this morning, I want you to know I am glad you're here, really glad, because Saul's story is for you. It really is. Once you go ahead and lose your place there in Acts chapter 9 and flip over to the book of 1 Timothy. Okay, flip over to the book of 1 Timothy, and I want you to, to listen to something that this man wrote. Again, after his salvation, Saul's name was changed to Paul, okay? And many years after his conversion, as death was approaching for Paul, he could see it coming, he wrote this book, this, this letter to a young man who was going to follow in his footsteps, okay? And I want you to, to listen to what he says about that. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 to 16. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost What Paul is saying is that if you made a list of all the sinners there ever were in this world, I would be at the top of that list. I would be number one. And Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, and he saved me, the worst sinner ever. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's words here that are recorded in the Bible for millions and millions of people throughout the centuries, these words here in 1 Timothy, are both a statement and an invitation. They're both a statement and an invitation. The statement that Paul makes is that God saves sinners, and he saves them with grace. Grace that, as our text tells us, is overflowing. There's something there that we got to see. When it says that God gives a sinful person like Paul or a sinful person like you or me grace, what that means is this. For Paul, uh, for all of his sin, and for you and me, for all of our sin, what Paul deserved, what we deserved, was God's wrath. We deserved God's punishment for our sin, but instead through Jesus through the love that God has for sinful people, 
through the grace that he shows, sinful people like Paul and like us, God gives grace. We're not given what we deserve. We're given something that we don't deserve. There's something pretty powerful here that in that original language that Paul used to write about this grace that that Jesus gave him, he doesn't just use the word grace, he tacks on the prefix hyper. He says that Jesus gave him hyper grace, or as our English translation has it, overflowing grace, grace that's overflowing It's not like Jesus gives him just a little grace, saying something like, hey, Paul, I'm sorry, this is all the grace I got for you. It it may not be enough to cover everything you've done. Sorry. That's not the way it works at all. Jesus has come into this world to save sinners like Paul, like you and me, with grace that is overflowing. Biblically speaking, One drop of God's grace is enough to cleanse you and me and the entire world of all of our sin. But when when the text says that we are given overflowing grace, I think this is Jesus' way of saying, look, I don't want there to be any doubt, no doubt about my power to forgive my power to cleanse you, my power to wipe your record of sin clean, white as snow. Listen, we, you and I are not going to out the grace of God. There is more grace in Jesus than there is in you. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you that he doesn't say, hey, it's up to you. I can do this. I can only go so far, but now you got to take care of the rest. He doesn't do that to us. He says, I'm going to give you grace, grace that is overflowing. For you and me, for Paul, where our sin abounds, God's grace superabounds. God's grace superabounds. So the question on the table, the invitation on the table is this. Will you trust him? Will you receive Jesus' offer of grace? We heard earlier about Jackie Hill Perry, about how God was at work opening her heart and her mind to the truth of who he was. He was also opening her heart and mind to the truth of who she was about her sin and her need for a Savior. I want you to listen to how she describes what happens next. Who gave mercy my address? Or who told it how to get to my room? Didn't it know a sinner lived in it? On the way down the hall, shouldn't the smell of idols kept its feet from moving any closer? Then I remembered the one verse of the Bible that I knew by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And in these words, spoken just a moment later, from a heart that was in the process of being remade, these are words that she spoke to God, her new friend. 
What you're calling me to do, I can't do it on my own. But I know enough about you to know that you will help me. I didn't know that the confession of my inability to please him and the shifting of my back away from the sins I'd previously embraced was repentance. Nor did I recognize that my resolve to believe that he could be to me what no one else could was faith. But it was. Without asking me my permission, a good God had come to my rescue. I've read that last sentence about a hundred times and it gets me every single time. Without asking me my permission, good God came to my rescue. We sang it earlier. It's because of his relentless love. I'm going to pray in just a moment and uh, we'll thank God for what he's shown us this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and God has been at work in your heart and in your life. Maybe he's at work right now. And my prayer this morning is, if that's you, my prayer is that you'll respond to this grace, this overflowing grace that is offered to you by Jesus, a Savior who comes with the word of rescue. Not only a word of rescue, but the power to pull it off. If you would like to respond to that, if, you, if you're thinking, man, what, that sounds good, what do I do? I, I just want you to know, you can, it's like Jackie Hill Perry, there's no you know, complicated steps you have to follow, there's no long, fancy prayer. You can simply say to yourself in the quietness of your own heart, Jesus, for far too long, I have rejected you. For far too long, I have sinned against you. But you said that you'll rescue me. You said that your grace is overflowing. Would you give me that grace? Would you forgive me? I'll trust you. And if that's your prayer this morning, I want you to know that three things are going to happen, at least three things. First of all, you will be forgiven. In that moment, your sins are wiped away. Secondly, you are adopted into God's family. He makes you his son or daughter, a child of the king. That's amazing. The third thing is that God begins that process of change, changing you from the inside out. This morning, if you'd like to talk to somebody more about that, maybe get some answers questioned, maybe get some questions answered, or uh, just have somebody pray for you, After we're done this morning, there are going to be some men and women down front, and we would love to talk with you. Maybe you'd like to have that conversation, but now's not the right time. And if that's the case, that's okay. There's a card in the seat back pocket of the chair in front of you. Just fill that out. Give us your name and a way to get in touch with you. You can place it in one of the boxes on the way out this morning, the boxes by the exit door, and we'll follow up, okay? Conversion happens not because of us, Not because of our goodness, but because of the goodness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because of his relentless love, because of his overflowing grace. Would you please pray with me this morning? Lord Jesus, together we are in awe of you. Your power to save. Those of us here this morning who 
who know you, who have experienced that rescue, who have experienced that salvation. We need to rejoice in your power to give overflowing grace. And Father, for those who may be here, I pray that they would know that overflowing grace as well. Your grace, Jesus, is truly amazing. Thank you for your love. Thank you for living the life that we could never live, dying in our place, rising again to confirm your victory and your power. We love you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Thank you.